The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. It may not look like it, but spring is here. <laughs> the surest sign of spring being here, opening day is tomorrow. They do this whole thing where like, they have like Sunday night baseball is the first game. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to this. Opening day is during the day, and it's a whole slate of games. Opening day is tomorrow. And that's my day off, so I just assume it was declared a national holiday for all of you, because opening day should be a national holiday. Absolutely should be. And I, there, there seems to be something uh, additionally pleasant and promising about opening day this year, at the end of this winter. All the weather, all the signs that I've seen on Facebook from parents, I think, only half-joking. Now I understand why some eat their young. <laughs> A lot of enforced days together, as I understand it. And it wasn't just that the weather was bad enough, is that there were, you know, waves of sickness and illness just rolling, rumbling through families. I mean, there was a cold and bronchitis, which I had, and then there was a flu, which also went around, and then this just, my God, I didn't get it, but I know some of you did, that this like demon gut bug that just like laid some of you low. I, I, was, I, I was so fastidious about... Um, about washing my hands this winter. I'm a hugger and a greeter, and so I'm a, just, I'm a germ collector, of course. And, you know, I, I had washed my hands sometimes this winter so many times that, like, the skin was starting to come off. But I just, I, I, was, I was really geared to one thing. On, on January 26th, on January 26th, I wanted to make sure I was healthy. And on the night of January 25th, I started to feel the tickle in the back of my throat. And that was the start of cold and bronchitis. So sometimes that's the way the world works out. I don't expect your pity. Because really all that it cost me is something that's important to me, but in the grand scale of human miseries, very, very slight. What I missed is that I wasn't able to see this person in concert. That is Jason Isbell singing with his wife, Amanda Shires. Jason Isbell produced for me the most meaningful piece of music in 2013, his album Southeastern. He was known as a wildly talented musician for many years, coming up in his late teens when he became a member of the band The Drive-By Truckers, and he was also simply known for being wild, out of control, not a good steward of his amazing talent and gifts. And so Southeastern is the story of his sobriety story that resonates deeply with me and I know resonates with deeply many of you as well. Jason Isbell is an incredible storyteller, like so many Southern musicians and artists are. And as a progressive Southern musician and artist, he also takes a look honestly, sometimes brutally honestly, at the past that he has inherited. Most particularly, he did this uh, in a song he did with the truckers called Decoration Day. It is, I think, the scariest song that I have ever heard or would ever want to hear. It is a recitation of what it is like to be born into a family of either the Hatfields or the McCoys. Deep generational dysfunction 
a heritage of violence, of mindlessness, handed down to him. As he says in the song, my daddy got shot right in front of his house. He had no one to fall on but me. So one of the great joys I take from Jason Isbell's growth as an artist is that he is also growing his heart and his soul as a human being and beginning to come to a deeper place of peace and understanding with what clearly sounds like a difficult heritage that he has inherited. You know, there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things out there in the popular culture about paying attention to the ways in which, uh, for lack of a, a better phrase, our families warped us. Uh, so um, so I, I love this particular headline from The Onion, the satirical ma- uh, online magazine. Study finds every style of parenting produces disturbed, miserable adults. Now, there's a long continuum there, folks, and you can place yourself wherever you want around it. I mean, the joke in that is that, of course, there is no such thing as a perfect family. And some of our families are so deeply imperfect. This message series that I'm doing about midlife, midway through this life, is for many of us, whether we're expecting to be in midlife, whether we are in midlife, whether we have been through midlife, it is a particular time in the developmental life cycle in which we stand between inheritance and legacy, between understanding in a deeper way our ancestors and also focusing on our descendants, biological and otherwise. At midlife, we are regularly offered opportunities to reflect on where we have been and we, where we are going and to see, maybe in the clearest way yet we have in our life, the tremendous connection between those two things, between what we inherit and the legacy that we wish to hand off that will succeed us and follow us in this life. Now, I know not all of us have been wounded in the same way in our families of origin. Some of you have had tremendously happy, well-adjusted childhoods. Or some of us just haven't been paying attention. (laughs) I don't think any of us get out of our families unscathed. And we also come out of our families with tremendous gifts and love and connection. I'm going to focus today a little bit more on some of the wounds that we inherit from our families. There are abundant resources in our time, perhaps more abundant resources than at any other time in human history, is a good guess, for healing past family difficulty, patterns, dysfunctions, and traumas. This can create a tremendous amount of opportunity for us for healing and growth. And I've also seen that, because some of you have shared this with me very directly, that this is also a double-edged sword, because with that opportunity also comes the ability to see some things we don't really like seeing about ourselves, about the families we come from, about the cultures that we come from. The opportunity is that perhaps we are able to say with integrity, meaningfully, that whatever this is for you, that this can end here with me in this generation. That the script, the story, an unhealthy one, does not need to keep repeating and repeating 
and repeating. To quote from the wisdom of Frozen, we can learn to let it go. There is tremendous freedom here in these midlife inquiries about inheritance and legacy, about not just following through unconsciously on the script that has been handed us, and it takes a lot of intention and a lot of sweat and honestly a lot of tears as well too for many of us to write a different story. It also takes, I believe, a tremendous amount of humility, a liberating humility, but a humility that doesn't always feel all that great. Uh, a few months ago, in a different series, I talked about a phrase called, um, I want to make sure I get it right, epigenetic change. Epigenetic change, actually change to our genetic structure that's handed off as a legacy. And I use this one particular research that a number of you who are uh, far more scientifically literate than me said, you know what, yes, it's interesting, but it's not at all conclusive, so this is my mea culpa and my amends for saying that this was definitive. It's not, but it's interesting. What they did was at University of Emory's uh, medical school, some of you might remember this, they um, gave a certain kind of scent, I think it was of uh, rosewood, to uh, mice, and then gave them small, unpleasant stimulus, shocks. They did this over and over again, repeatedly, and then they studied the offspring of these mice. What they found was interesting. <laughs> Is that even though the offspring, the descendants of the mice that had experienced these negative experiments, even though the descendants had never, say, been exposed directly to the connection between the scent of the rosewood and the electric shock, that the mere smell the mere scent sent them into tense states, panicked states, states in which they were expressing fear and anxiety and distress. So wherever this research, as intriguing as it is, will lead us to a deeper understanding of perhaps the way in which not just our cultures but our genes change because of trauma, because of stress. In fact, actually what Emery was researching isn't all that new. It's what many of us have known about our families for a long, long time. And in fact, it's been part of what spiritual traditions have well told us about families and cultures for a long, long time. I remember when I first seriously started to study the Hebrew scriptures, I was in my 20s. Uh, a particularly arrogant and unwise time in my life, particularly. And so I remember reading um, certain, parts of, uh, certain parts of the earliest parts of the Hebrew Scripture, the, the Torah, the first five books, the five books of Moses, as they're often called. Um, and there's a, a refrain that we hear sometimes that struck me as tremendously unfair and fantastically unjust, that, you know, basically the, the sins of the parents will be visited upon the children. And actually, here's the cool thing about the Hebrew Scriptures and their developing character of God when we reach the prophetic literature. In fact, there's a different, deeper understanding of their relationship with their experience of God. And in fact, they say, well, that's not going to happen any longer. The experiences, the sins of the parents will no longer be visited upon the children. But I have to tell you, when I go back and read those earlier passages, the ones that really stuck in my craw in the 20s, as a 44-year-old guy, I read them differently now. I don't read them from the sense of saying, it is good and right. There ought to be the visiting of the pains, the traumas of the parents upon the children. 
but simply that maybe this is what they observed in their society. That addictions and traumas and violence and unhealed grief, these things can be perpetuated. Legacy of pain and inheritance of difficulty. For many of us who have started the process, never fully finished, have started and begun the process of knowing our own family histories, our legacies, our inheritances, I think that this understanding of the way things are perpetuated, whether it's the ancient Hebrew scriptures, whether we call it family systems theory, whether we just call it generation to generation, that in fact this can be a very liberating insight much more liberating than an individualistic model that just wants to place ourselves alone at the center of the universe, but in fact knows the ways in which we are the product of relationships for good and for ill. This is one of the most profound openings to humility and also healing at midlife. That is, the Buddhist tradition says there's dependent origination for everything. (laughs) Everything comes from somewhere else. Out of this insight can come some of the deepest spiritual work that we can do as human beings. Knowing the patterns of our relationships that we have inherited more deeply, hopefully more honestly, we can then, from a space of pivoting towards the legacy we want to leave, choose more wholesome, more healing, more helping forms of relationship. This does not come about by seeking to cover our tracks. In fact, it may mean a sometimes intentional, direct turning around and facing the tracks that have led to our lives. Frederick Buechner, who is a Presbyterian minister and novelist, says that too often in doctrinal traditions, and his is one, he says they like to present the doctrine as if it just kind of dropped from heaven. But in fact, he said, scratch the surface of any doctrine, scratch the surface of any profound teaching, teaching, and you will see... And I love this image. Eyes that cried or faces that smiled. We will see a human history behind all of our wisdom. And what can be so liberating at midlife, but at other times of life, well, is to be able to choose not to cover our tracks, but to open up And through that opening up with humility, to heal. To do what is and engage in what is one of the most profound aspects that I am finding about being a midlife person. To be able to integrate. To be able to integrate those parts of ourselves that we might consider shameful or make us feel less than. Or make us feel as if we are separated out from life. This is the form of healing that comes through integration of our paths and leads us out into deeper connection with other lives. I want to tell you a story right now that kind of brings these qualities home for me. And it's actually about someone who's in their 20s. The truth is that great suffering or great pain can open us up to profound healing at any point in life. And so I'd like to have kind of a 20-something guide us through this next part of the message. It's from a, the story comes from a woman named Rachel Naomi Remen, who some of you know is a medical doctor, and even more of that, she, she is a healer. 
a healer of the psyche, of the heart, and of the soul. And she tells a story about a particular patient that she was working with, a young man in his early 20s, who until that point in his life had been healthy and athletic, never really experienced any great difficulty. And then they found within, his, within one of his legs a tremendously invasive, aggressive cancer. And the only way to save his life from the cancer was to fully amputate his leg. This young man found himself in states of shame, anger, even rage at his body, which no longer felt complete. In states of rage at other people's bodies that he felt were complete and whole. Now, blessedly, he was able to connect with someone like Dr. Remen. And so engaged the opportunity, not just to heal body, but to heal psyche, heart, and soul. Meditation, intensive therapy, art therapy, expressive, deep ways of getting in touch with his pain and with his wounds. One of the things that he did as he began to heal is he found himself called back to the place, not covering his tracks, called back to the place that he knew himself intimately. He began to visit other people in the hospital who themselves had body parts amputated. The story that Dr. Remen tells is of one particular day when he went to visit a woman, also young, in her 20s. It was discovered that she had a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And so she had a double mastectomy. This young woman, previously a glorious singer, fell into a state of despondency in the hospital as her body healed, refusing any identification with herself as a singer any longer. The young man who had lost his leg He visited with her one day. And the medical staff had turned on some music in the background, maybe thinking in a not terribly skillful, sneaky way that they would get her to sing. She wasn't biting. As the music played in the background and finding very little connection between the two of them, the young man with the amputated leg found that he could do the only thing that he could think of which is that he took off his prosthetic and started to dance. Dancing around the room on one leg. I would try to do it right now, but I think the only way I could do it would seem like it was satirizing this man, which is the exact opposite of what I wish to do. So just imagine this in your mind in, in, the, in the hospital room, in the hospital ward. One young man dancing around to music on one leg. And the woman in the bed, the woman who'd had the double mastectomy, smiled for the first time in a while. And, and, and she looked at this guy and she said, Man, if you can dance, then I can sing. <laughs> you can dance, then I can sing. This is what happens when we follow the call beyond shame, naming and claiming and not shaming ourselves. When I first read this story, I thought of this particular little character from my life, Nilla being the bunny, aww. And maybe you'll see, only one front leg. 
She's an older bunny. She has what the doctors term a metabolic process. She kept breaking that her leg, and so it had to come off. Now, she healed in body, and from what I can tell, especially from that picture, because she's sticking her snout right into the camera, she has no shame. <laughs> Wonderfully so, she has no shame. But as human beings, we are so much more complex. And I love what that young man did. What that young man did that calls to mind uh, Wendell Berry's wonderful line from his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. And I think of Noah, you know, entering into connection with creatures who do not foretax their lives with thoughts of grief. Noah Bean doesn't do that. We can do that. This young man, continuing to integrate his path in the years of working with Dr. Remen, at one point went back to some of the earliest drawings, earliest pieces of art therapy he had done. In one of these, he pictured his life as a broken vase with a big, big, dark, jagged gash down the middle of it where he had taken a black crayon and over and over and over and over. meant to symbolize his lack, his absence. A few years after seeing this, he asked for a yellow crayon. And around the space of that jagged mark within him, he drew light, sunshine, saying simply, this is how the light enters me. Brings to mind this wonderful little couplet from Leonard Cohen that some of you might know from his song, Anthem. Ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. In naming and claiming, we choose the healing path that is not shaming. And we also enter into a different state, a deeper state of connection, of compassion, of recognizing, in fact, that our wounds, your wounds, my wounds, our wounds, can be our source of our greatest strength. That there is no proper time or appointed place to wait for the perfect offering because it doesn't exist, because that's just not who we are. That our strength can arise from our vulnerability and our wounds, not our invulnerability, and the strength that puffs up and puffs out. I heard a wonderful articulation of this naming and claiming rather than shaming way of being this past week. A guy named David Giffels, who's a writer in Akron, Ohio. I think we all probably know this. Akron, Ohio is not doing real well financially. It has not been for a very long time. It is part of what they call the Rust Belt associated with the decay of post-industrial America. And David Giffel says that at one point he had a chance to move to New York City as a writer, but he chose to stay in Akron. <laughs> he chose to stay where his people were. And one of the things that he celebrates about Akron is that now at the University of Akron, you can, if you choose to, get an undergraduate BA degree in the study of rust. <laughs> You can get a degree in the study of rust. You can study decay and make a living from it. Mr. Giffel says this. 
One of the reasons that they love that they call it the Rust Institute is not to say we're ashamed of this past that was defined by decay. We embrace it. It's something that's integrated with our future. This ability to not shy away from the past is not just the study of rust, it is the study of transformation. It is, as I said a couple months ago, when our building started to offer us composting, residential composting, the opportunity to take all of our garbage and turn it into fertilizer. Take the opportunity of our waste and turn it into the seedbed for our profound growth. In midlife, so many of us have an opportunity to look back on who we are with deeper insight and perhaps see the ways in which the dots connect. Little birdie. But there's something even better, I think, than just looking back and connecting the dots, which is this. Disconnecting the dots. Opening space up again. That the past script doesn't have to be present or future story. And artists wonderfully call it negative space, and there's nothing negative about it. In the space where the lines once were, there is now the space of possibility, openness, and freedom. Our unconditioning. Our new habits of health and wholeness. This is where I want to create a bridge between now and next Sunday. The final piece of this Midway Through Our Life message series. And I want to end with a favorite piece of poetry that literally makes no sense, but on the level of the soul makes all the sense in the world. It's from Rainer Maria Rilke, and it's called Widening Circles. I am circling around God, around the ancient tower, and I have been circling for a thousand years, and I still don't know if I am a falcon or a storm, or a great song. Today, may you be able to, yes, connect the dots and see our lives more clearly and see your life more clearly. But also, may all of us open to the negative space, the unfilled-in space, the emptiness of our souls still yet coming to be. May we disconnect the dots and accept the charge of the call of the open road of the soul. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirits of our cries and whispers, spirits of this deep listening to this life, of working with what is, with what we might with humility and honestly come to see clearly about ourselves, about our inheritance, about what we were born with and what we were born into. May we know this clear seeing, this insight, so that we can fully, wonderfully, mindfully turn our hearts, our lives, our souls back to the life from which we were born and are continuously born and offer back to that life healing, wholeness, 
as the ancient Hebrews would have said, the tikkun tikkun holam, the healing of this world. And as we are a part of this world, the healing of no more and no less than our own lives. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.